because it was going to be a place of the future. The new building was Earl Sexauer's vision. The building was huge. It had a bigger and better port of call, a double hydraulic stage for illustrated sermons. I'd never seen a stage that went up and down before. <laughs> for Earl Sexauer, it was the cathedral of tomorrow. I can remember going to church and being aware of a somber thing had happened. When Earl was 40, he passed away very suddenly. It was a heart attack that just took him right then. A shock to everyone. It was just an overwhelming sadness. He was dearly loved. You know, you think, well, what are we going to do now? We all became closer, knit, as tragedies often bring people together. We knew where he was. We didn't know why the Lord had taken him, but we knew that there was a purpose, so we, we traveled on. The Lord was gonna bring someone else. I am one of the sons of Jake and Charlotte Bealey. My father was called to come and be the senior pastor. He was a very formal leader. He could have been the head of a large corporation. He actually told the board, you know, if you want me to come, I mean, I'd love to preach and teach the word, but I am not an illustrated sermon guy. Nobody had the energy of Jake Felix. He was never somebody just to sit around on his hands and say, well, we've done it like this before. He would come up with something new. His mission was share the love of God, whether it's across the ocean or across the street. He came in June of 54. In December, the board said, I know the Eldred Sermon stuff is not your thing, but we always do this Christmas play. And my dad said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do that. He came to realize the impact that that has on people. And from that point on, it was like, hey, this is, I'm going for this. Sunday evening was really what really set us apart. All these people would be flocking to the service. We had to take all the chairs that we would use up in the educational unit, and we all lugged those chairs into the service and put them in the aisles to accommodate everybody. There was even a lady in an iron lung that they rolled up the steps. It was the place to be. The program would start, you know, with the dimming of the lights, there'd be some singing, and then we'd go into the illustrated sermon. I worked backstage. The curtain we rolled up by hand, and then it would catch. And the curtains would part, and you'd have a, a vignette of some old, ancient, biblical king. It was so tactile, so visual. The church was designed with a hydraulic stage. They would raise this stage, and there would be a set, full set of props on the lower stage, and, and it could be a living room, it could be a biblical scene, it could be anything. Pastor Jake, he's preaching a service, but he might stop, and one of the characters further the plot along. And so that did indeed make you listen to Jake. You were always kind of on your toes. I remember as a kid, we would go down to quarter-pound burgers, and he would thumb through the jukebox playlist, and he would read the song titles and go, oh, that's a great one. We'll use that for the next sermon title. And it was that and the burger. They did one of uh, Love and Marriage, because there was a song that was Love and Marriage Go Together Like a Horse and Carriage. Shortening bread, 16 tons. 
The only purpose at the end was to introduce people to Christ. I can remember one where it's always bad, it's the negative that will stick out. Ed Harris portrayed the devil, pitchfork and horns and all, and the fire that they had on the stage became a real fire. <laughs> there was one scene where a guy was supposed to take the robe off of Jesus if he pulled his wig off, and so everybody started laughing. And the guy that was playing Jesus, he had a hot mic, and he said some stuff he shouldn't have said, and everybody heard it. And so that was like, oh, what a disaster that was. Last midnight service, Christmas Eve, the sheep escape. Shepherds in full garb. Chasing the sheep down MacArthur Boulevard. Boy, if anybody <laughs> had a little too much to drink, they might not have been too sure what they saw. <laughs> we had the choir until after Jake came, and then it changed. And we had the choral airs. The lights would go down, and then they would introduce a little something, and then you'd hear the choral airs. Well, the Choral Airs was a musical group that consisted of about 25 to 30 vocalists, and then an orchestra of maybe about 20. Saxophones and clarinets and violins, and it was like, wow. The Choral Airs were really fun to listen to. They were so good. People loved it, and it was crowded every night. You came early, so you'd have a place to sit. It was the hottest thing in town. The traditional church we'd come from that was a very quiet, sedate type of music. And boy, this was peppy and we loved it. It was almost like a Broadway show. You know, I, I think we took a lot of support but a lot of criticism in the Bay Area because we were just too far out there. It was too nightclub-ish for a lot of people. And yet if you go back and you look at the music, right on the money, I mean, it was really good, solid scriptural stuff. One of the things that Jake Bealey emphasized was you had to have a lot of creative ways of drawing people to the church. For example, the bus ministry. We started a little bus tour over in the projects and picked up all the kids that wanted to go to church. We had buses that would go from Oakland all the way to Hayward and pick up kids. You want to get people to come, go get them. I'm a product of the bus ministry, and I grew up in a non-Christian family. I came to the church when I was about eight years old. We didn't have a car at all, so there was no way to even get to church. And the, from the first Sunday I went, I absolutely loved it. I saw the difference in the people. These were people that uh, showed a lot of love. In one of my Sunday school classes, I had a wonderful teacher, Daisy Larmer, and the church had camps. At camp, uh, I was fortunate to have Daisy as a counselor. And she was the first person in my life, I'll get emotional, that, that I saw Jesus in. I told her, I said, whatever is in you, I want. And so she led me to the Lord on the bunk. I was probably fifth grade then, and I love her dearly to this day. I still see her. Later, when you look back, you realize how much people prayed and were concerned to get youth into the church. From playing baseball to having carnivals and camps. Sweethearts banquets, ski trips. Every child, no matter how small, how rambunctious, how shy, was taken care of, was ministered to. It just reinforced the story of God's love. Jake Beelig knew 
if you had a place that was attractive to children, their parents would bring them. And that gives you another opportunity to tell someone about the Lord. But also he knew that the future of the church was in children. Muzzy passed away in 1950, but other people caught the vision and the protocol ministry just took off. I got involved in it in 1958, and I was a hostess. Friday night, we would have an all-night prayer meeting. The Lord would handpick those that would come out. I was stationed at Alameda in a patrol bomber squadron. I had a Christian background. I didn't buy it at the time. I'm young, I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. God was pulling at my heart. I was on the Ariskany first and then on the Hancock, both carriers. And when I was at the Port of Call, just met a lot of really nice people and, and the girls were nice too. <laughs> and that's where I met my wife, Joyce. Mixing games and we'd have pantomimes. And then at the very end, gospel would be presented. And we would have many times 18, 22, 25 people that would go down to the prayer room. Until I went in that prayer room, that's when, that's when the Holy Spirit met me. They would put all the beds out and we'd just get in them. Then Mom Farner would come in and she would sit down up by the fireplace and she would read a scripture and afterwards she would really say a nice prayer for everybody. Warm, as peace. It was like your home. Really thankful for what happened at the protocol. It just was a family working together to further the gospel. The continuum of the people changed. Muzzy, Earl Sexauer, and Jake Bealey. There was consistency of God's presence. It was the Lord's work, not Earl's work. Even though they grieved, they didn't all say, we are following a man, he's gone, we're gonna go somewhere else really committed to the Lord. I think he was pleased. We're all sinners, but still, I think he was pleased. It was an, an atmosphere of expectation. You'd prayed for this particular church service. You had people around you that you knew didn't know the Lord. So it was an atmosphere of expectation. You were expecting to see God really move. We saw servicemen giving their hearts weekly, daily to the Lord. Night after night after night, there would be baptisms, there would be testimonies. There was response. So what that does is strengthen your faith, that indeed that serviceman next to you, he's gonna get saved. It raises your faith and expectations of, of what you can expect from God. And so the faith was next week, we're gonna see even greater results. Next week, we get to see the last installment of this three-part video series about how our church was able to move from 84th and MacArthur Boulevard and seize an opportunity here as the freeways were coming into Castor Valley. And so, um, like I said, if you missed the first part, you can watch the sermon from last week and watch the video there for now. Um, and I have loved all the music of the Cathedral Corollaires, and um, so... Our team, I think David specifically, spent a ton of time and digitized some of those old vinyl records and made those available to you. And so if you jump on the Three Crosses app today and go to the homepage, you'll see music and the Coralaires album. You can listen to the Coralaires songs from that first album there. Um, I had it playing in our living room yesterday and Jessica said, it feels like Disneyland in here. Um, 
So this is kind of like space agey 1960s music. So check that out. Um, we'll find other ways to get that to you as well. But right now it's on the Three Crosses app. Well, along with this video series, we are walking through the book of Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter today and talk through Paul's speech to the religious leaders in that city in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Europagus and said, People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And as I read through Acts chapter 17, it strikes me that Paul, the apostle, seemed to be handcrafted for ministry in that locale. We talked about last week that Paul was armed with a burden for lost people and a mouth that wanted to share the gospel with anyone who would listen. And as we think about the culture of Athens, we see that, like we saw last week in verse 21, that in Athens, people spent all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest religious ideas. And so Paul was a man that God had equipped specifically for the task of sharing his faith to the people of Athens. And we listen to that and, and we think, okay, well, that's not me. I don't have a mouth that wants to overflow with the gospel. I don't have a, a burden to go and tell every living creature about Jesus maybe. And, and that's okay because you don't live in Athens and you're not living 2,000 years ago. You're living here. But Paul, we see, was handcrafted by God for this very specific ministry. And it seems that Athens was crafted for a man like Paul to come into. And this is a picture, kind of a reenactment maybe, of what the city of Athens may have looked like in Paul's day. This is a German painting from the 19th century. Up on top of the mountain, uh, we see what we now know as the Acropolis. Remember the ruins up there, the big Doric pillars? And then coming down the mountain, down on the side, you see all these little buildings and temples. Now there was a giant temple to Athena on the top, and then along the way as you came down, folks would erect these statues and monuments and temples to all the different gods that they worshipped. And so there at this flat place called Mars Hill, a group called the Areopagus would gather, and they would listen to anyone who came into town and wanted to make a pitch about adding a god to the mountain. It was kind of like a real estate 
pitch kind of thing they would give. They'd come in and say, hey, my name's Paul, for example. I worship a God named Jesus. I think Jesus should have a temple on your mountain. Here's a bunch of money. And they'd say, great, break ground, right? And they would start building these temples on the mountain to all these other gods. And so Paul had this opportunity. There was a place in town where people would go and espouse new religious beliefs. There was a culture that wanted to hear about new religious thoughts. But for Paul, the hardship was that Paul's God was unlike all the other gods. Now, Paul had no desire to spend money on building a temple for Jesus in Athens. Jesus had no desire to be added to the hundreds of gods worshipped in Greece. And the chief tenet of Paul's message was the idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the one religious foundation of the city of Athens and the culture of Mars Hill and the Oropagus specifically was very anti-resurrection. And one of the historians notes that this was the phrase, we'll put it on the screen, that, that described the culture of religion in Athens. It said this, when a man dies, the earth drinks up his blood. There is no resurrection. And what that phrase meant was kind of like a first century YOLO or something, like a carpe diem. Listen, this life is all we get. There's no resurrection. There's no afterlife. And so we honor the gods today. We see what they can give us today. We give them stuff. They give us stuff. We live our life to worship them. And in return, they make us bountiful today, right? So Paul had an opportunity to speak into a very religious culture, but he also had to take that opportunity to subvert the entire narrative of the culture in one speech. That's a lot of pressure. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to, to testify about what you believe. If you have, you know, it, it feels like a lot of pressure. You're sitting around Thanksgiving and you're a new Christian and your uncle says, hey, you go to church now, what's that all about? And everyone stares at you. And you get this feeling like, okay, I feel like maybe God put me on this planet for this moment. But you just want to leave. <laughs> you're sitting at work in the break room and you're kind of talking about things. So I said, hey, you go to church? What do they believe up there at three crosses? You're like, I think this is God tapping me on the shoulder, right? But in that moment, you feel like, okay, conversations like this don't happen every day. I got one shot. I, I, I want to get this out. I want to say it right. And and you want to steward this gift that God gave you of an opportunity to speak out for him in front of people who are far from him. Paul had an opportunity given to him based on the conversations he was having in the marketplace. You see in verse 18 that as he was chatting, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? But others who saw an opportunity for this whole real estate thing remarks, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So these people saw an opportunity for Paul to come up to Mars Hill and pitch his God. And so they invited him up to come and make this pitch in front of all the religious leaders of the day. I haven't had a lot of opportunities in my own personal life to, to make a speech like this. You know, most of the time that I give a speech, it's in front of you nice people, right? And no one wants to kill me. Uh, I'm not trying to subvert your narrative, right? I'm just trying to encourage you with the scriptures and help you see how Jesus can empower you to live the life that he's created for you. It's very rare that I stand up in front of a group of people who are hostile to the gospel and have to preach the gospel over them. 
And yet as I prepared this, I remembered one time I had to do that. <laughs> and I think I botched it, but who knows. I, I was in college, and I was part of this group called Campus Crusade for Christ, which the very name implies that they were really passionate about transforming UC Berkeley's campus. And, and so they were always trying to get us to share our faith on the quad, to go up to people and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus, right? And that was not my vibe. That was not my scene. And I tried to avoid that as much as I could. But God was also tapping on my shoulder saying, hey, I want you to grow in this area. And so they brought everyone together and they, and they said, hey, we have this idea for a campaign where all of us put our hands in the middle and we all go after witnessing for one week and we need everyone to be a part of it. I'm like, all right, I'm kind of in, kind of in. They said, here's what we want to do. And they had this guy named Paul. Not this Paul, because he was dead at the time. This new Paul, this guy, stand up. And they said, hey, this guy Paul, he's going to stand on Lower Sprawl Plaza on Friday at lunch, and he's going to give a speech. He's going to share his testimony in the gospel for anyone who will listen. I'm like, good on you, Paul. That's great, man. I said, here's where you guys come in. And they, they pulled out this bright orange gaudy T-shirt that said, I agree with Paul. I said, all week long, we want you to wear these nasty orange t-shirts to get some attention. And when people come and they ask you, what's this whole thing with Paul? Share the gospel with them and then invite them to come back and hear Paul on Friday. And I'm like, no, thank you, right? Orange is not my color. This is not my scene. I'm not doing it, right? And yet God kept tapping on my, on my shoulder. Get involved, do something, right? I'm like, all right, I'll buy a t-shirt, but I'm not wearing it. So I bring my five bucks to the crusade booth on Sproul Plaza and they've got this box of t-shirts. And I treated it like it was this drug deal or something. I've never done a drug deal, but I assume this is what it's like. I, I kind of snuck around the back and I said, hey, can I get one of those t-shirts, right? And I like rolled up $5 and slipped it across the thing to them. And, and then I grabbed a medium or whatever and I rolled it up into this tiny little scroll, like as small as I could. And I held it in my hand. So it was like this little orange piece, like I was running with like a baton or something. It's a little orange t-shirt. I'm like, it's so bright. I felt like it was glowing. And I'm like, I'm not putting this thing on, but I, I, I donated to the cause. I've got the t-shirt. I'm just going to see what happens next. And so I go to my next class. And I'm a little bit late because I had this drug deal to do. And, and I show up, and it's a Spanish class, advanced conversational Spanish. And I go and I sit down in the back row of the class, and I put down my backpack. I kind of slide the t-shirt next to my backpack. And, and when I look up, my teacher is staring at me. He says, hola. Daniel, I'm like, hola. He says, ¿Qué es esta camiseta? What is that t-shirt? ¿Qué camiseta? La camiseta naranja. ¿Estás de acuerdo con Pablo? Do you agree with Paul? I'm like, ¿qué? So, Pablo. ¿Estás de acuerdo con Pablo? Sí. En que estás de acuerdo con Pablo? And what are you in agreement with Paul? <laughs> that was, makes more sense in Spanish than in English. Uh, Pablo cree en Jesús Cristo? I'm like, I don't, at Cal they don't teach you all the Christian words. Uh, I, didn't know how to, I didn't know how to say pray, I didn't know how to say gospel, evangelist, sin. I didn't know any of that, right? I just, I know how to like, I don't know, read 19th century Spanish literature. That's what I learned. And so I, um, I'm like, well, Paul's a Christian. He's, oh, no, 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 no. Levante, en español. <laughs> Lo 
So everyone looks at me, he says, stand up, do it in Spanish, he says, for you non-Spanish speakers. And I have this feeling like, you know, people say God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I think this is what they mean. And so I opened my mouth, and I think I preached the Christian message as well as I could. And then I sat down. And he said, gracias. And then we moved on with class, and like my face started returning to its normal color. There's a few times in life that we have these opportunities to, to speak the gospel with an audience of people. And you can sense in those moments that there's a lot of weight to do it right. To, to say the right words. To, to do it the right way, because... I, I felt like, okay, God has given me this opportunity and, and these people's eternal destiny is at sake, stake. Like if I botch this, this might be their one opportunity to hear the gospel and God has ordained that I do it in Spanish for them. <laughs> so it's a responsibility I, I want to handle with care. I, I look at Paul's speech here in Acts 17 and I ask, well, what does he say? Because sometimes I feel like we get into those moments and, and all we know is that there's a gospel content and we just want to dump it and go, right? Have you ever done this before? You're talking to a friend and they say, hey, what do Christians believe anyway? And you start sweating and they're like, are you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm cool. And like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And then you give them like the world's fastest gospel presentation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Christians, you know, they believe that God loves you. He has a good plan for your life. But, you know, and we sin, we mess up and you know, because we messed up, we all deserve to go to hell forever. So, but God sent Jesus to the earth and he came, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. If you believe in him, you can have access to God and he raised from the dead to give you life. And if you just trust him, you can have it. So do you want to, do you want to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior today? <laughs> right? And they're usually like, no thanks, man. <laughs> we feel like we've got this, it's almost like the gospel is this stick of dynamite. And they're like, all right, we throw it and just like, wait to see what happens. And what I love is when Paul preaches this message, he doesn't just drop the gospel bomb on these people. Paul starts not with his own story, not with God or the story of Jesus. He starts with them. He says, you can look at this here in verse 22. He says, people of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So what you're ignorant of today, I, I'm going to explain to you. But as we read this, it feels like Paul is this masterful orator who just found the perfect introduction to kind of weave together the current scene with his own gospel presentation. And, and it's easy to look at it and say, okay, that's a skill that I don't have. I don't know how to have an eloquent gospel conversation. I just know how to do like the Jesus dump and run. That's as far as my skills go. But I think like what we learned last week is that this is not an example of Paul being an eloquent orator as much as Paul being someone who had a deep burden for these people and who had immersed himself in their way of life for a little bit before having the opportunity to share. Right? Remember, Paul says he was walking around in the marketplace and as he walks around in the marketplace, he develops this burden for these people. He sees a, 
a statue to the god Artemis. He sees a statue to the god Apollo. He sees a statue to the god Zeus. He sees a statue to all these goddesses, all these gods. And Paul's heart within him is becoming heavy because he's feeling like they worship everyone but Jesus. And then he sees a statue that says, to an unknown God. Paul's like, this is the only one that matters. These people, they, they think they're so religious, but they're, they're so far from God. They're not understanding that the one God they don't know is the only God that matters. And he had this burden to share that with him. So as Paul gets an opportunity to stand up and speak, what comes out of his mouth is his burden for these people. And what he does is he builds a bridge between their culture and his. Now two things I see that God gives Paul in this passage is one, he gives him a community that's filled with openness towards the gospel, people who love to talk about religion. And two, God gives Paul an opening to share the gospel, an opportunity where all eyes get on him and he can take advantage of that moment. And in that moment, Paul doesn't just drop a gospel bomb on the people. What he does is he starts by sharing his burden with them. I think in real life, the way that this looks is, you know, we've got a neighbor across the street and they're going through a hard time and you go over there to say, hey, is everything going on and everything going okay? Your neighbor says, actually, no, my, my wife left me or my husband left me or there's a death in the family and we're kind of just struggling. And sometimes they might say, hey, how do you deal with stuff like this? I know you're a Christian and you're tempted to just give them the Sunday school answer, right? But I think what we can learn from this passage is that maybe you can start by feeling the pain of that person and saying, hey, I, I know this is hard for you. I've gone through hard times too. And it's, being a Christian makes it easier. But you know what? No matter what you believe, we, we all experience hard times like this. And starting with this, this heartfelt connection that's real for the people you love and trusting that as you keep that conversation going, you can move it towards the content they're really asking about. How does your faith make a difference? Then tell them the truth. In my life, honestly, when I go through times like this, prayer makes a huge difference. Having a church community makes a huge difference. I'll be praying for you in the midst of all this, and I'm across the street if you need anything, right? And there's something human about a conversation that starts with you feeling where they're at and doesn't start with you dumping content on top of where they're at. And I love that that's how Paul gives us this picture in the passage. He says, you guys, I... I know you care about religion, and his heart goes out to them. He says, I, you even worship an unknown God, and I'm here today to tell you about that unknown God that you have not yet met. His name is Jesus. As Paul starts to share, the message he gives is not an easy one. This isn't the story of Paul just telling them some nice things that make them feel warm inside and then walking off the stage. He has to pivot and start to give them some really hard truths about Christianity. Right? He needs to tell them that Jesus is not interested in being worshipped among all these other idols. He needs to tell them that the very core of their belief system, that there is no resurrection, is faulty at its foundation. He needs to expose this sin of idolatry in the people. And he doesn't shy away from that. He moves from this place of connecting with them to start to tell them the truth about the gospel that he proclaims. And he starts that in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he does not live in temples made by human hands. I picture him like 
pointing over at the hills. And these temples, my God is not interested in living there. I picture him pointing down to the marketplace and all the idols and the statues and saying, he's not served by human hands as if he's needed anything. We should not think the divine being, in verse 29, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. The way that you worship is wrong, he says. And then he says, in the past, in verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And he kind of lobs the gospel grenade of resurrection and we just kind of watch it bouncing on the ground and we wonder, is this thing going to explode or not? I feel like if this was a movie, this would be the moment where there's really awkward silence and then one of two things happen. Either the people erupt in applause, you know, like in Acts 3 or Acts 2 when Peter preaches on the steps of the temple and, and the people are cut to the heart. They say, what do we need to do? And he says, be baptized, all of you. They say, okay, right, and they all get baptized. That's option one. Option two is they all start chanting, kill him, kill him, kill him, right? You don't feel like a speech like this has any room for middle ground. Like, this is divisive. This is saying everything you believe is wrong. And my God wants to explode your entire way of living. And he's not held you accountable so far, but now Jesus has raised from the dead and you're accountable. So repent. But nobody applauds. Nobody murders him. Instead, the response is kind of mundane. It says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I don't know if a sneer is audible or not, or if it's just kind of the Elvis lip or something, but some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I admit, when I read this this week, I was thinking, wait, what? then what happened? It seems very quiet after a powerful speech. I even looked up this, this woman, Damaris. I looked up Dionysius. I'm thinking, okay, is there some hidden subtext here? Like, are these the leaders of a house church movement later in, in the Bible, in the book of Acts? Are these people in church history really significant figures? And so Luke is saying, listen, it seems like it was a small ripple, but really it exploded in growth. Did Athens change as a result? Did the whole city explode? And all I could find was not really. Dionysius is never mentioned in the Bible besides this one verse. Damaris is never mentioned in the Bible beyond this one verse. We don't see Athens becoming a bustling metropolis for the gospel in the scriptures. Just seems like it was such a powerful message that just kind of didn't have a powerful result. Now the same thing happens to us usually, right? When God gives us opportunities to share our faith. I, when I sat down in the Spanish class, there was no applause. There was a couple of people like patting me on the back, like, "Hey, I'm sorry, man, <laughs> do that." There was no one who came up to me after class and said, "Hey, just so you know, that really impacted me." 
And so it's easy to walk away from a moment like that and think, why did God orchestrate this? Why did God give you that opportunity to share what you believe with your neighbor when they didn't ever reciprocate? Why, why does God give you an opportunity to have an awkward conversation about what you believe with people at work when there's not a, a huge transformational experience afterwards? I think when, when I read through the way that the gospel works, when Jesus talks about this very thing, and Jesus says that this is kind of how it all works, that the gospel is not a stick of dynamite. It's not a grenade. He says the gospel, if anything, it's, it's a seed. Remember that parable? The farmer goes out to sow his seed and he scatters it. And he says some of it kind of lands on the street and it just gets eaten up by birds. Other it lands on rocky soil. Other it falls among weeds. And it's kind of this picture that when you go out and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, you're kind of just like throwing seeds at their head. Maybe at their heart. Don't throw it at their head. You throw their seeds at them. And sometimes, like in Athens, Paul throws these seeds at the Areopagus and, and it just bounces off of some of them. They're like, eh, and they sneer at him. Other people, like it hits them and it changes them a little bit. They feel something about it and they come back and they say, hey, what you said today actually made some sense to me. Can I talk to you about it later? And Jesus says that, that these seeds, some of them, they grow and they start to take over our, our whole lives and they convert us. They start leading to a harvest and tens and hundreds and thousands of people become followers of Jesus because this tiny seed of the gospel was planted. You know, Paul might have walked off of the platform and felt like, that was stupid. <laughs> and yet, when Paul tells us about preaching, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel message. Because the gospel is the power of God for anyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that's by faith from first to last. There's something about this message that transforms lives forever. Don't be discouraged if God has given you an opportunity to share your faith and you feel like you botched it because nothing happened. Now, sometimes the seed that we plant takes a while to harvest. Now, other times it just bounces off the people. Other times God uses it in a magnificent way. And you know what? I feel like more than anything else, this teaching, it takes the pressure off. <laughs> I had a, a professor in seminary who said that he pictures preaching the gospel almost like speaking to an auditorium where in every chair there's a barrel. And he said, some of the barrels have gunpowder in them and I'm just up there throwing matches. <laughs> and you throw the gospel at somebody and just like sizzles. But you throw the gospel at somebody else and boom, it changes their life. You send the gospel to somebody else and it starts a chain reaction and later they come to faith. There's something about this message that transforms the world and we just have to trust that when you let it out, like God says, my word will not return void. Now, I don't have some story now about how six people from my Spanish class got saved and told me later, but I think one of the things that I carry with me as I serve Jesus is just knowing that, hey, maybe someday you're going to find out about things. Maybe someday in heaven, maybe someday on earth, we're going to meet someone who says, hey, you know what? That thing you said at Thanksgiving... Or that thing you said in broken Spanish or that thing you said at school or that thing that you told me that one time or that prayer that you offered that one time, it really impacted me and set a chain reaction of events off in my life. And now I'm here today, I follow Jesus and I feel like you were a small part of that. That's how it works. And Paul did not walk down off of Martha's Hill with a hundred converts. But he was faithful to scatter the gospel seed. And God was faithful to bring that seed to a harvest in Dionysius, 
Damaris, and a number of others. As we go from here, a few things that you can carry with you as you live out your week. Number one, as you live in this world, live like Paul did. Look for openness to the gospel. Look for openings to share it. You'll be surprised if you pray that God would give you opportunities. Pray that God would bring people who are ready to hear this message. Just how much God will use that prayer in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in your home. Look for openness. Look for openings and and take them when God gives them to you. Number two, I think one thing we can learn from Acts chapter 17 is that it's good for us to learn how to contextualize the Christian gospel message. And that might be a new word for you, contextualization. Really what that means is find a way to put the Christian message in the context of your listener. I love the way that Tim Keller describes contextualization. He says, contextualization is not giving people what they want. It's giving God's answers, which they probably do not want, to the questions they are asking and in forms they can comprehend. And what that means in in our terms is that when you talk to your neighbor and they say, hey man, I'm having a hard time right now, how do you deal with that? Don't just give them this crazy religious Christian speak, right? Get to their language and give them an answer they're asking. Say, hey, that seems hard. Here's how I deal. Here's how my faith works in my life in this area. Make it a conversation, not a lecture. And find ways to answer the questions that they're asking, not the questions they ho- that you hope they're asking. Contextualize the gospel. Third, seize opportunities to share the gospel. And fourth, trust that God is the one who does all the work. And I talked to somebody after the first service who said, you know what, a, a pivotal moment happened in my gospel sharing when I stopped sharing the gospel out of fear of God and started sharing the gospel out of love towards the people I was reaching out to. He said, I have to admit, for a long time in my life, I shared the gospel because I thought God would be mad at me if I didn't do it. He said, but now I look out at the world and I see these people who are far from God and I love them and I just want to share with them. And and everything started taking off when I moved away from a fear-based ministry and into a love-based ministry. I think the best gift that this theology gives us is that God, like Jesus said in John 15, God is always at work. He's always calling people to himself. He's always working in our communities and our families and our workplaces. And yet the God of the universe sees fit to invite us into his work, to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, why don't you take this one? (laughs) To say, hey, why don't you take this conversation? Why don't you partner with me in this moment? And God is still working. God's the one working through you. And yet he uses people like us. And so there's not a pressure to do good so that God will be glorified or that God will like you more. There's an invitation from God to step into the work that he's doing, trusting that he chooses people like us to carry this beautiful message into the world. As you live this week, open your eyes to see the opportunities that God might give you to open up your life, your experience, and your faith to the people who need to hear it. And if we do this, and God might give us scary opportunities, but he might give us really natural ones too. And at the end of the day, people's lives will be changed eternally because God saw saw fit to work through you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close.